Welcome to Mediation Today, a program brought to you by Vesnatsa Tichanin, a Canberra lawyer and mediator. Every episode introduces an experienced Australian mediator to talk about mediation training, development, ethics and practice. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the ACT land, the Ngunnawal people. Dear listeners, a couple of years ago, I had an opportunity to participate in a workshop Canberra's Conflict Resolution Service organized on restorative justice. The workshop was presented by David Moore and his partner, Aliki Vernon. I'm pleased to say that David is my guest in today's episode. Good morning, David, and welcome to Mediation Today. Thank you, Vesna. It's lovely to be speaking with you again. David Moore is one of Australia's leaders in the area of restorative justice. He has been involved with Australia's restorative justice movement since the pilot program of group conferencing in New South Wales in the early 1990s. David has taught at several universities, worked in a premier's department, trained facilitators and helped establish evaluated programs around Australia, North America, the UK and Scandinavia. In recent years, David has been a principal advisor to the Defence Abuse Response Task Force and National Redress Scheme. He is the president of the Association for Restorative Justice based in Victoria. The strategies and messages I learned from you, David, at that workshop more than two years ago made a strong impact on me as a mediator. Your interactive style and active engagement during the workshop were refreshingly original and effective, I must say. In the first part of our interview, I'd like to talk about your professional background. Tell us, please, about yourself and how you got involved in the Alternative Dispute Resolution after completing a PhD in history. Yes, it's a bit of a long-winded story, and I'll try and um, make it straightforward and reasonably logical. But I found myself teaching history and politics at Charles Sturt University, just down the road from Canberra, of course, Vesna, having previously been at Melbourne University. And I left because they were threatening to tenure me. I had a good time there. But Charles Sturt offered me a really interesting position where I found myself coordinating the Justice Studies Programme which was a newly created program for people working as professionals in the justice system. Now, I didn't have any intention to necessarily get into alternative dispute resolution as a practitioner, but I happened to be then, in effect, in the right place at the right time, knowing the right things, when a proposal came to the good town of Wagga Wagga from a policy officer in Sydney. It was a very interesting proposal. Essentially, this policy officer, who, who has became a colleague of mine and we worked with for quite some years, had gone across to New Zealand in 1990 and looked at new legislation in New Zealand. Um, it was a piece of legislation called the Children, Young Persons and Their Families Act. It's now called the Oranga Tamariki Act, so it's got a Maori to, uh, name now. But it was a path-breaking piece of legislation and the consequences of of it internationally are still unfolding. So essentially what happened in that 1989 legislation that was put in place in the closing stages of the Longy government, the New Zealand government made available to people involved in child protection matters or youth justice matters, not having a government official make a decision about them, but instead providing the option to sit down in a group and work out the best arrangements 
in youth justice cases where young people had, had harmed some uh, somebody else or in child protection matters where a decision had to be made about the safest place for a, a young person to reside. Now, that sounds simple enough, but it was actually really radical because it was essentially saying rather than the state or the government making decisions for people or doing things to people, the state would provide a process where people affected by a complex situation could be supported to make a decision. So you see the parallels with alternative dispute resolution, but it wasn't actually called alternative dispute resolution. Uh, the name given to that approach was a translation from the Maori terminology. So the Maori word whanau essentially means your extended family network, um, so community of care. And the process in New Zealand was called the family group conference. Now, what we did in Australia was take that process, the family group conference, and we put it into a pre-existing program, which was the police cautioning program. So in other words, we were running police cautions for young people involved with the law who'd caused harm one way or another. And instead of being cautioned by a senior sergeant, they instead met with all the people involved in the case and essentially asked the questions, well, what's gone on here? How can we, uh, who's been affected? And, and then how can we make things better? Let's go back to Wagga Wagga and what happened then? So it was the New Zealand via policy officer contacting you in Wagga Wagga. What happened well, then? Well, no, it's actually it was a Sydney-based policy officer who took a delegation to New yes. Zealand and yes. came back and said, well, we could do what our, our Kiwi cousins are doing uh, and we wouldn't need new legislation because we already have a legal space where we could run group conferences, at least for youth justice matters. And that's essentially what we did. So we had, a, if you like, a process and we put it into a pre-existing program. Uh, at that point, we weren't even calling it restorative justice. We just happened to say as we started to make sense of what we were doing, by the way, this looks like what, particularly in North America, is known as restorative justice. But the important, we put the emphasis on the name of the process, a group conference. And so what we had to uh, work out, and I remember saying this as the uh, justice Program Justice Studies Coordinator at our first meeting. I said, look, this will probably work, but it will also uh, raise the attention of some government officials because it's highly democratic and that will challenge some people. So when people come to look at what we're doing here, we need to have watertight statistics. We need to be able to make it entirely clear that what we're doing is absolutely 100% legal. And we also have to have a theory about what we're doing. So we said that in advance and then set about working out, well, if you're going to bring a group of people into a room who are understandably upset because there's been a property theft or even a physical assault, uh, you need to make absolutely sure you know what you're doing and that you can prepare these meetings and run them effectively. So interestingly, we weren't starting, if you like, with a rule book for mediation or this, that or the other thing. We were starting with the principle of we've got a group of people who are in conflict and they need to answer What's happened? How have people been affected? How can we make this better? So then we needed to answer, well, how do you invite people to that meeting and how do you ensure that the meeting runs effectively so that the group can transform conflict into cooperation, which is the phrase we landed on to describe what we were actually seeing. So the rules we had to come up with essentially were, well, if you've got a group of, if you've got a person or a people who've caused harm and a person or a 
group of people who've been directly harmed and you have their friends and family members and you have some professionals as well, that gives you five groups, if you like. And we, we use simple language, so perpetrator and supporters, victim or victims and supporters and the professionals. That gives you many different sequences in which you could get the story told of what happened here. And it took us a little while, but not too long to work out there was one best way to get that group to explain to themselves, so to get the big picture of how we got here. And that was essentially to get the story told in the order that it happened. So a story of how one thing led to another. So in these cases where we're dealing with a single incident, and originally these were all with young people below the ages of 18, we'd start with them, so where, where and when was this happening and what happened, and then go across and get them to tell the full story of what happened, so their actions and the thoughts and feelings associated with them, then go across to the people who'd been directly harmed, then to their supporters, members of their social network, and then across to the people who were attending with the people who'd caused the harm. And, and closing the circle. David, yes. I would like to hear more about this. And let's leave the, the, this uh, fine detail, which is essential for your process, uh, for the second part of our interview. But now I'd like you to tell me who you would like to hear music from. Oh, I've suggested the Gregorian brothers. I've heard them live on a number of occasions. I think they're living national treasures. And in fact, last time I was in Canberra, I heard them um, playing live with Wolfgang Mutspiel, the Austrian guitarist. So, Lovely. today is David Moore, the President of the Association for Restorative Justice. In this part of our conversation, David, I would like to focus on your contribution to the world of restorative justice, your practice, training and coaching in it. You told us a bit about your involvement and, and the beginnings, but before we go into the finer detail, I would just like to say that in the recent submission, the Association for Restorative Justice uh, submitted to the Victorian Parliamentary Inquiry into the Victorian criminal justice system, it said, there is a consistent and growing base of evidence that restorative approaches can deliver an effective response for all those affected by crime and that a broader set of restorative practices can help to prevent crime. So let's start with, with uh, a little bit more about how you got involved in the restorative justice system. I know you told us how you got exposed to it, but what prompted you to devote a large part of your professional life to it? In essence, I was, as I say, teaching quite happily and enjoying teaching in a, a broader field, if you like, of politics and, and history. And then this program or the opportunity to develop a program presented itself and as I started to observe what was going on each time we ran one of these group conferences, and I wasn't initially facilitating them, but I was observing them and seeing something almost magical happening, which was time and time again, we had people who were really in a lot of conflict for quite understandable reasons. When we gave them the opportunity to make sense together of what had gone on and where they were now, 
and then help them negotiate a plan for making their situation better. They would sort things out and they would be both practically, objectively better and feel a whole lot better. And hence that idea of transforming conflict into cooperation. Now, in that early pilot program, we were simply using the process to deal with particular incidents in the youth justice system. But we saw at the time fairly quickly that this had much greater ramifications and much broader applications. The first action we had to undertake was to write a manual for facilitators. And we were asked to do that in South Australia by the Courts Administration Authority. So South Australia was the first uh, state or territory to actually pass legislation like the New Zealand legislation. And when was that? That was 93, that mm-hmm. Act, 1993. So very quickly after we'd set up the pilot program. And then you, in fact, saw a cascading effect around the country. And it was largely because we'd written this manual so that we were able to go from knowing about this approach to knowing how to do it and developing groups of facilitators who could actually deliver these group conferences. So South Australia legislated. We started uh, with the support of the National University in Canberra running a randomised control trial, and that ran for quite some years. And in the meantime, we had legislation in New South Wales and Queensland, and we did some training in the Territory. Victoria eventually came online with Youth Justice Group conferencing, uh, legislated in... 2005. But what happened with that manual was that it started providing some guidelines for people running group conferences in other settings. I recall in 1994, it would have been, I was speaking on the ABC Radio National's law report, and I got a call from a education official in Queensland saying, well, that process, I know you're using it with police, but we could use it in schools to respond more effectively to bullying cases. Bingo. That's yes. it. <laughs> exactly. And someone else in the right place at the right time, knowing the right things, best night. And listening to the right program. <laughs> <laughs> and listening to a very good program, which is still running. Exactly. And it's been very supportive over the years. So um, it's, it, this is a good example of what you call combinatorial evolution. So yes. putting two things together to prevent create something that didn't exist before. And so you have to put the message out all over the place, knowing that maybe only a small number of people will be in the right place at the right time and in a position to do something. Exactly. And we found that in North America as well. We did a lot of training soon after. So, But, but um, just to stick with the schools for a moment, because this was really interesting. In effect, and, and you rightly you made that distinction in the language between restorative justice and restorative practices, so we've said, look, use the language of restorative justice for the justice system. And once we started training people up, we could use the group conference to for cases that didn't go to court, that were just referred by police as a cautioning. But we started using it to help magistrates make decisions in court. And we've also used it post-sentence for encounters between people who are serving a sentence for a crime and the people who've been harmed. In some cases, we've also used it for pre-release planning. So we call that restorative justice and we reserve that broader term restorative practices for everything else outside the justice system. And as I say, the first of these programs were in schools and schools initially started using the group conference to respond to particular incidents. And they're the sort of incidents that are really problematic, that bullying cases or 
uh, you know, serious uh, fights between young people that lead to suspension or in some cases even expulsion. And in the Queensland program, again, we're talking early to mid-1990s here, we were able to show on the Sunshine Coast that we significantly reduced the number of student days lost through suspension and ex expulsion. So then we ran a trial in New South Wales on a much bigger scale. Uh, we did that in, in parts of Sydney, in some big regional cities like uh, Dubbo, and also uh, more remote and rural and remote areas in uh, in western and northwestern New South Wales. Interestingly, all those schools had similarly statistically significant results, so greater student engagement and fewer days lost through suspension, let alone being expelled from school. But really interestingly and unexpectedly, some of the schools said, oh, we haven't run any group conferences, which we found puzzling. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we, heard, we said, well, that's sort of destroyed our theory. Um, what are you doing? They said, no, no, it's, it, it all made sense. We took the theory that you had about how the right sort of techniques when you're making decisions in groups can improve not only the decision that the group makes, but how people get along. And we use that to review the way we work with staff, the way staff work with students, the way we run classrooms. And at the end of that, out pop the statistical outcomes that people are happier and there's less uh, conflict. Mm. David, that is really uh, something that, that absolutely makes sense. And there's, I'm sure, so much to say about this. But... I'm pleased to say that I will also interview Aliki Vernon, your business partner, and we will talk about and unpack some, some related matters and maybe revisit some of what you were saying. But could we just, um, I had that um, question about recidivism. Can you please tell us how that reduces recidivism? And you were mentioning the educational side of things and you were talking about different partners in that. How does it work? at both the individual and system and society level? That's an excellent question, and it is hard to give a short answer to it, precisely because there's a lot going on in those meetings. And, that, and then the short answer is, there's a lot going on that makes a difference at the individual level, at the level of relationships, and at the level of systems. Interestingly, I've just read a paper, and I can't officially quote it because it hasn't been published yet, but it's an evaluation of the youth justice program as it currently runs in Melbourne, and they said they're seeing reduction in reoffending for equivalent cases of around 40%, maybe a bit more, and it's the same for property offences as it is for offences against the pe uh, people. And the authors there concluded it effectively... It's what we've been saying all along, that there's something going on not only psychologically but in terms of relationships, that there's a resetting of relationships. So the original theory that we had or the original hypothesis was actually based on a book, uh, in fact a famous book published by the Canberra author, John Braithwaite, called Crime, Shame and Reintegration. And that book correctly says that societies that have mechanisms for reintegrating people tend to have lower rates of reoffending, But what we found was that the dynamic that goes on when you sit a group down to make sense of what's happened is, is actually interestingly different from what that title implies. So it's not about a group saying, look, you people who've caused harm, once you express remorse, we'll accept you back in. 
what actually happens is subtly different. And it's one of the reasons why Indigenous groups around the world have found this approach very appealing. It's the reason why we got invited to Canada to do training for many years by the Aboriginal Justice First Learning Network. And that was that when you sit the group down, it's the strength of emotions in the group that helps or everybody move to the point where they don't want to fight, flee or freeze anymore. They actually get to a point where they feel like they need to work together to make this better. So the act of making sense of how we got here actually shifts the whole group emotionally mm. to the point. And, and you, as you well know, and as your mediator colleagues, uh, as our mediator colleagues know, Vesna, what, the most famous book in this whole field is called Getting to Yes, Yep. after which the authors then wrote Getting Past No, and then they subsequently wrote Getting to Peace, meaning that we've often put too much emphasis on individual rational decision-making and underplayed the social pressure of a group and the power of emotions to motivate people. So a big part of our understanding, and it fits with everything we've observed over many years, is that when you set these group processes up well, the group as a whole moves to a better place and then you can effectively engage in large group mediation. You're negotiating with the whole group on all the things we would need to do to respond to harm that's been caused, to prevent any further harm and then to promote well-being. And so those agreements are really meaningful. They've often got lots of elements to them and people, more importantly, have a are deeply invested in them. So they weren't in any way coerced into making the agreements and they want to follow through with them. So it's not simply that we rely on some insight, some cognitive insight or some psychological shift in the meeting. Rather, the meeting does cause a shift, but it also has people leave with an agreement that makes a real tangible difference in people's lives. And, and so we address underlying causes of reoffending very practically. We're not simply relying on some individual's um, psychological shift or set of insights. David, fascinating. I'm sorry to say, in interviews like these, we could chat for another episode, I'm sure. Thank you for your choice of music, Gregorian Brothers. I wish you all the best and thank you for being my guest. Thanks again, Vesta.